Sunday, we'll do what we do each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, there's even a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you want to turn to our passage today, Matthew 23, beginning at verse 16. And when you found that, if you'd stand together with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew 23, beginning at verse 16, Jesus says this, Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but, if it, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath? You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. That's God's word. You may be seated. We pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, I ask for you to illumine the preaching of your word. Open hearts and minds and eyes to see and hear what you want to speak to us today. Accomplish your good purpose in each one of us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, it was November 1st, 1911, when 16 men, led by Captain Robert Scott, pictured here, he set off to claim the title of first expedition to reach the South Pole for Britain. He wanted to claim that title for Britain, but a title and a challenge which he soon quickly found out was going to include something of a race when Roald Amundsen of Norway informed him by telegram of his own intent to reach the Pole. Now, if you know the story already, you know that while Amundsen and his party all returned safely, actually reaching the South Pole a full month ahead of Scott's party, Scott and the four others included in his last leg of the journey, they all died on the return trip. And the reason historians agree, owing almost entirely to Scott's leadership. Which was strange because Scott was no stranger to Arctic exploration. And he had all the uh, uh, abilities and appearances of being a seasoned Arctic explorer as well. And yet, on this expedition in particular, he had chosen a very different method of reaching his destination, which flew in the face of both his experience as well as kind of tried and true methods of the day of Arctic exploration. So he chose to use ponies, to use a new and yet untested technology of motorized sleds and manhauling. If you don't know what manhauling, it's this. It's pulling the sleigh by yourself. He chose these methods instead of sled dogs, which was kind of the commonly understood method of how you do Arctic exploration. All of which, all three things he tried, failed miserably. Uh, were not able to uh, accomplish the task in the end. 
Uh, there were also navigational mistakes. He made mistakes in fuel storage, which lost half of the fuel they needed, both to eat as well as to stay warm. And then the last and most fatal mistake of all, in taking, as you can see in that last picture, don't go back there, it's okay, but in taking five men on the last leg of that journey to reach the pole, when he only had sufficient food rations for four men. All of which is simply to say, while glorious, Arctic exploration is no joke. And, and leading this organization or this expedition, Scott had an obligation both to guard his own safety as well as the safety of those who were following him. But as a direct result of his pride as well as his intractable commitment to doing things his own way, he not only lost his own life, but he led four other men to a devastating end as well. And I mentioned that somewhat depressing story as we begin here and continue in our mini-series in Matthew's Gospel on Jesus, Seven Woes to the Pharisees, because the woes Jesus speaks over the religious rulers in our passage today, well, they speak to the very same kind of negligence, misguided leadership, in this case, as it relates to life in the kingdom of God, what God requires of those people in his word, with now eternally devastating results to both the Pharisees as well as to those who followed their leadership. Which, as you heard in this passage you just read, is why Jesus now mixes up his condemning description of the Pharisees and the religious rulers, calling them hypocrites once again, which we saw last week. Again, actors playing out a role on a stage, acting like those who were closest to God because of their strict religious obedience, but whose hearts were damningly far from him. But now he adds a new description. Blind guides. Blind guides, that is, those who pretend they're leading people closer to God, when in fact they don't even know where they're going themselves. Which was fitting. Because just like Scott, as God's representatives... These religious rulers had an obligation as well. They had an obligation to lead those people following them towards safety, but, and because of their pride, because of their commitment to doing things their own way, they were leading people instead toward an equally devastating end. But, just as we saw last week, and actually we're going to see in each of the weeks coming ahead, there's, there's a contemporary message in each of Jesus' woes to the church today as well. Right? We don't just get to sit here in our armchairs looking back at history, at Jesus, you know, tearing apart the bad guys. Uh, it's not going to be that simple. There's, there's something for us to learn here as well. Both, I think we're going to learn about a way of understanding the Bible that Jesus wants us to avoid, as well as a way of kingdom living that Jesus wants to call us to. And so those are the two ways that I want to break up how we look at this passage today. We're going to start by looking at legal malpractice. And then secondly, we'll talk about the weightier, or what the NIV here translates as the more important matters of the law. Okay, so just those two things, legal malpractice, the weightier matters of the law. So if you closed your Bible, Bible app, whatever you're using, could you open it again to this passage? I'd love to have you follow along with me. As Jesus, once again, he calls out the hypocrisy, calls out the mask wearing of the religious rulers, and then warns against misguided teachings about the kingdom of God that result from their hypocrisy. Okay, so let's do this. Let's look, first of all, at legal malpractice. And yes, I'm, I'm using that term ironically. I, I mean to. Uh, but of course, 
At the same time, you see throughout these seven woes, Jesus' reference is to both the Pharisees as well as to the teachers of the law. Now, of course, there's some debate as to whether or not Jesus is using both descriptions to describe one group or if they're two different groups. But no question, either way, the Pharisees were very much absolutely those who also sought to teach and train people to keep the law, both the law of Moses as well as all the other numerous religious traditions that they put around the law as kind of a buffer, which they taught as being equal to the law of God. And if malpractice is simply being trained in a certain profession and then failing to perform your duties in such a way that harms your client, well, man, I can't think of a more appropriate description to apply to those trained in the Scriptures and yet who cause so much harm to those who follow them. For as you just read these kind of descriptions of their training, the results of their training in the law of God for people, remember last week we saw everything from Their training resulted in tying up heavy, cumbersome burdens, placing them on people's shoulders, uh, resulted in them shutting the door to the kingdom in people's faces, and even making those who came to them twice as much a child of hell as they were themselves. I mean, clearly, Jesus saw these guys as being guilty of legal malpractice as well. And as we see from the passage today, Jesus gives kind of two specific examples of their legal malpractice as it relates to their teaching how do we obey God's law, we see the first one in verses 16 through 22. This is where Jesus is focusing on making oaths and what that means. And then the second example of legal malpractice we see in verse 22, or sorry, verse 23, as it relates to the practice of tithing. We're going to look at that more in our second point. So first of all, the practice of making oaths. If you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, which I know probably feels like we looked at 15 years ago, but Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, Jesus had already taught about making oaths back then. He said, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Then concluding with all this, all you need to do is simply say yes or no. Anything else beyond this comes from the evil one. But considering the ways that actually we still do this right up until today, saying things like, I swear to God I'm not lying. I swear on my mother's grave I'm telling the truth. We say stuff like this still all the time. N.T. Wright asks this question. He says, if we're not sure that our words will carry sufficient weight by themselves, why do we add these pointless extras? Is it an attempt to stiffen the backbone of our sentences? For what begins as a sign of insecurity in our attempt to make our speech a bit more colorful without the effort of actual thought continues as a habit and eventually becomes mere noise that we're hardly aware of. I think that's true. But Jesus' point then wasn't at all to say, okay, because vows don't matter. Who cares about that? That's not what Jesus was saying. His point was that as God repeatedly says in his word, when you do make a vow, God will hold you to it. So that's what he's warning them against. So he's saying, rather than making any kind of vows at all, or by swearing by things that aren't even yours to use as collateral to begin with, why not just be integral in your speech and say what you mean? That's really what he was getting at, right? And the same is true in our passage today, okay? When Jesus is talking about oaths that do and, and, and aren't valid, he's not reneging on his former teaching about making vows. All he's doing is pointing out the ridiculousness and really the dangerousness of the teaching of the Pharisees who were, really, they were releasing people 
from having to pay vows that God had not released them from. Saying things to people like, oh, you swore by the temple and not the gold of the temple? Oh, you only swore by the altar and not the gift offered on the altar? You know what? You're good. God doesn't hold you to that vow. To which Jesus is like rightly clarifying here. He's like, guys, like everybody here listening, by the way, what do you think makes the gold of the temple or the gift altered on the altar sacred in the first place? Isn't it the temple or the altar on which the gift is offered? But you see, this is kind of one of the key examples of how the Pharisees' hypocrisy, as well as placing their religious traditions alongside the law of God, got them into so much trouble and made them such dangerous guides to follow. Because when your opinions, your ideas about God, ultimately your preferences, become equally as valid as God's word, well, suddenly, excusing people, excusing yourself even, from what God actually requires of you becomes the simplest thing in the world. Why? Well, because God and what he said is no longer the only standard. It's no longer the only authority by which you judge what is and is not acceptable in God's kingdom. You've broadened the scope of what is the standard now. Which, man, like, Never mind the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for a second. If you know the story of the Bible, this has been our bent right from the beginning of time. Since the serpent first directly questioned the word of God. Did God really say? And then in response, rather than submitting to what God had said, actually, we're told this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate Like, what was going on in that moment? What was happening? Weren't there opinions? Weren't there preferences really being held equally alongside, ultimately actually overruling what God had clearly said about eating the fruit from the tree? We can shake our heads at them. We can shake our heads at the Pharisees and ignore the thousands of ways that we actually do this very same thing right up into the ourselves. Excusing ourselves from having to forgive others as we ourselves are forgiven. Uh, excusing ourselves from having to be faithful to vows we've made to God or other people, excusing ourselves from generosity or open-handedness with all that's been given to us, even excusing ourselves from honesty and integrity in our dealings with others. We do this all the time. Now hear me. When it comes to our desire, which is a good desire to be obedient to the Word of God, there's, there's nuance to that. Okay, I, I get that. There, I'm, 100%. I'm not endorsing or recommending some kind of cultish bumper sticker fundamentalism, just like God said it, I believe it, and that's all there is to it. Like it's, it's more complicated than that. I understand that. And, and I'm not endorsing anything like that. I mean, no question. When, when, we, when we read God's word today and we're trying to understand and submit ourselves to it, be obedient, there's, there's context, right? There's cultural, historical differences. We've got to ask ourselves important questions, including uh, what genre of literature am I reading? You know, when Jesus tells me, like, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, should I be obedient to that? Like, we gotta, we got to, there's nuance to, to being obedient to God's word. What I'm speaking of here is more those times when it is actually really clear what God is requiring you to do. It's actually quite clear. And then immediately your inner defense attorney clicks in, jumps up to the stand, trying to find any loophole to excuse us from what God clearly requires of you. That's what I'm talking about. I think those are the times when we're equally guilty of legal malpractice. And just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the results are devastating. 
both to our own faith as well as to anyone looking at us right now, trying to know if kingdom living really is any better than what they're already experiencing. We become equally blind guides when we practice this kind of legal malpractice. Okay, that's legal malpractice. Last thing I want to look at together with you now is the weightier matters of the law. This is where Jesus is really going to call us now to the kind of kingdom living he wants from us and from all his kingdom citizens. And where you see this is in the second, it's actually the fourth woe Jesus speaks over the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Verse 23 and 24, if you want to look with me there. As I mentioned earlier, this is another example of legal malpractice that Jesus gives. So I'm just going to read this quickly and then we'll talk about it for a minute. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Okay, Uh, what what in the world is that all about? What's going on there? And follow-up question, um, why are the Pharisees tithing from their garden herbs? Like, is that a thing? Is that something we should be doing along with the plate back there? Should we have a green bin? The people, you could bring in your rosemary and, I don't know, whatever you're growing in your backyard. I, I, I don't know. Well, let's talk about it. If we begin with this seemingly strange tithing practice, probably shouldn't surprise you now that there was a law in the Old Testament the Pharisees were seeking to be obedient to in this very kind of strange practice to us. It was something that Moses had specifically said about tithing in Leviticus 27, where we read this, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Okay, so, I mean, we can smile at their seemingly absurd interpretation of that, maybe, maybe a little bit overboard on what they're doing here. And at the same time, as we saw last week, the reality is the intent behind why they were going to all these lengths really was good. It really was a, a plea to God for mercy, a, a, a begging God for deliverance from what they saw as the punishment of Roman oppression for their disobedience to God's commands as a nation. That's really why they were following this in this strict way. And if you notice, look at the end of verse 23. Jesus doesn't condemn their practice of tithing even. He doesn't say, hey, don't, don't bother with that. It doesn't matter. He's like, you should have practiced that as well. But as you see, what he does condemn is what he calls their neglect or forgetting of the weightier or more important matters of the law, which Jesus, as the originator of the law, like the one who came up with this, I'd say it's his opinion we'll be trusting here, were three things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness which as a number of commentators pointed out, seems to be almost certainly a summary of God's call to what he says he actually desires most of his kingdom citizens in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where God says through his prophet, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That last part, walk humbly with your God, almost certainly understood as referring to this faith or faithfulness to God, which Jesus speaks of in our passage today. Which means what? Well, it means ultimately what Jesus is saying in this next woe to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Again, a woe, as we saw last week, is both a verdict as well as an expression of sorrow and regret. He's saying while their diligent practice of tithing is good 
It's commendable. It's not the thing God requires most of us. Or as one other commentator added, it's still about a ritual observance of the law only and not a true heart's devotion to God himself. Which again and again, in both the Old and New Testament, God says, that's what I'm really after. That's what I really want from you. I'm not looking for your like repeating of rote verse, going through these motions as though like I needed to have my tires pumped, as though I was hungry and needed your bulls or was in need and wanted your money. What I want is a relationship with you. I want you to love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Offer ourselves to God, not our religious observance of religious minutiae. So then what's this about? Like how, how come, why weren't they doing this? How could those who, who were supposedly knew the law of God better than anyone else not know or fail to know or fail to do what was most important to God as it related to their obedience. I'm pretty sure they knew Micah 6.8, so what's going on? Well, I think the answer that they would have given was the same as we give today as why we fail in the ways that God says are most important to him as well. I think the answer is the same. It's because things like justice, like, like really pursuing justice, okay? Not, not putting on an orange shirt one day a week and liking posts on Instagram about human trafficking, actually working towards justice in our lives, showing mercy, which just as a quick reminder is about offering forgiveness to others, absorbing the debts that are actually owed to you, walking humbly with God, submitting ourselves to God's opinion, to God's ideas of what's best, to doing and valuing his ways above our own. Those are just way harder to do. Those are way more challenging and difficult things to do than just things like tithing, fasting, church attendance, making sure Praise 106.5 is at least one of the presets on your car radio. Whatever things you put in the I'm following God, they're just, they're just way harder to actually do that. But do you see Jesus' point? He's saying the Pharisees are hypocrites, not because their tithing is wrong, but because they're giving their greatest efforts to the easily, most easily observable aspects of the law in order to just kind of distract from, and maybe even distract themselves from the fact that they're neglecting the more important matters of the law almost entirely. But they're really good at the small stuff. That's what Jesus means there in verse 24 when he describes their strict religious observance as straining at a gnat but swallowing a camel. Like for context, for, for faithful Jews, they were to avoid being contaminated by eating anything that would make them unclean, of which the gnat was the very smallest thing listed in the law of Moses that would make you unclean. The camel was the biggest. So there was actually, they had this elaborate process, apparently. Whenever they would drink wine, they would pour their wine through a cloth, strain it in order to make sure no gnats were in there. And then they had coverings, which they would put over their cup in between each sip, just in order to make sure that they didn't inadvertently become unclean. So Jesus is like, hey, congratulations. You become experts at the fine print of the law while ignoring the heart of it entirely. Or like this kind of well-worn meme that showed up a lot during days of COVID lockdowns and vaccine mandates. I'll give you a moment to catch the gist of it. Jesus says, great, great job. You've avoided getting COVID. I think there might be some other more pressing issues that we need to talk about. 
but great job not getting COVID. And yet when you think about your own life, and I think about mine today, I wonder how often we're guilty of this same kind of hypocrisy ourselves. Straining at gnats in our obedience to God while swallowing camels whole. I think if we're honest with ourselves, if you're all like me, probably we do this more often than we like to admit. But if you sense that same tendency in your life like I do at times in mine, I think the question each one of us here today probably needs to spend some time trying to answer is, why am I doing that? Why? Like, what's going on in my heart that makes me want to obey God in the peripheral areas, but then not in the areas that he says truly matter to him most? Why do I do that? I suppose one reason could be wanting to appear more spiritual or more spiritually put together than we actually are. We're going to look at that a lot more deeply next week in the next woes to the Pharisees. But I think another reason for that, for many of us, is because things like doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with God, along with being far more difficult, they're also just kind of more abstract concepts, aren't they? They're more like difficult to measure, like how, how just am I supposed to be? How... how Am I being merciful enough to, like, you know what I mean? They're more abstract concepts, and, and therefore it seems like we kind of default to the more peripheral, kind of easily measurable aspects of obedience so we can kind of tell that we're obeying God, and maybe so we can prove to other people. I don't know if I'm being just enough, but I did tithe 10%. You said 10%? Okay, I did 10%. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just easier to measure, so we just kind of default to that instead. I think that's another reason we do this. But don't you see, Jesus' point isn't to say that these less important matters of obedience aren't important at all to God. No, they absolutely are. Otherwise, why would he bring them up? So they are important to him. The problem comes, and we also join the Pharisees in their hypocrisy, when we only perform those peripheral, more easily measurable aspects of obedience to God, and then delude ourselves into imagining we've obeyed him in all the ways that he requires of us. Really good at tithing. I showed up at church every Sunday. Man, I'm a total jerk. Yeah, I'm holding on to bitterness, but I've done the, like, you know what I mean? We imagine we've done the whole just because we're really good at the smaller peripheral matters. But in the end, the goal for every citizen of the kingdom, as Jesus says there in verse 23, is to continue to practice the peripherals of obedience while being careful not to neglect the center. That's really what he's calling each one of his kingdom citizens to. So, how do we do that? Like, how do we actually do that on a day-to-day basis? How do we do this better? Or how do we do this differently in the way that God actually intended for us to do from the beginning? How can I ensure I'm continuing to practice everyday aspects of obedience to God, like tithing, fasting, a daily time in God's Word, gathering for worship, all things which are really important and essential for my continued spiritual growth, while also being careful not to neglect these other areas of justice, and mercy and faithfulness that Jesus says are the weightier, more important aspects of obedience to God. How do I do it? I think in the end, the ultimate answer is considering the why behind our obedience. The why behind our obedience to God. For as we said last week, in God's eyes, obedience to his word is not nearly as important as why you're being obedient. What are you trying to accomplish by your obedience? Because obedience is never to be about earning our acceptance in the kingdom of God. 
It is always and ever only about a grateful response to God of someone who already is a citizen of the kingdom by faith in Jesus' work. That's it. That's, that's to be the why behind our obedience. But if your obedience is about being seen by others, you want to be seen like how spiritual you are, or you think you're earning your own way into the kingdom of God, both of which the Pharisees were guilty of, what you reveal either is that you don't yet believe the gospel or that you've simply not yet come to grasp the gospel truth in your life, as the Apostle Paul summarizes in Romans 8, that what the law was power, powerless to do Weakened as it was by our flesh, God did for us in sending Jesus, the perfect and perfectly obedient sacrifice on our behalf. We just have yet to fully grasp that. And on top of that, and this is particularly relevant to what we've been looking at today about blind guides, if your obedience is about only being seen by other people or about trying to earn your acceptance in God's kingdom, what we also do is end up leading anyone following you anyone looking to you to see what obedience is supposed to look like down an equally devastating path. Because either they believe obedience to God is about being seen or earning their own acceptance into the kingdom of God like they see you doing, or because they dismiss Jesus' kingdom invitation entirely. Because they see your pious focus on religious minutia while you ignore the cries for justice and mercy all around you. And then conclude, you know what? Faith in God really is as pointless as they already believed it was. But that's the thing. Life in the kingdom, being a citizen of the kingdom, it's glorious, but it's no joke. We, we as God's kingdom representatives here today, we have an obligation as well to lead people towards the safety and rest of the kingdom as well as to prioritize the things Jesus says matters most to God in our own lives. Are we? Are you? A am I doing that? Would people look at our church and say, we're characterized by those things that God says matter most to him? I don't know. I hope so. Increasingly, anyway. And that's the thing, man. I, I, and I'll close with this. Not only are justice, mercy, and faithfulness the weightier matters of obedience to God, they're also an infinitely more compelling witness to the watching world around us. Because here's what I can promise you. No one, like no one, is looking at how much you tithe, how regularly you attend church, how many Bible verses you've memorized. Look at you not sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage and thinking, I need Jesus. Man, I need Jesus. Uh, that's what I've been missing in my life. No one's thinking that. But here's what I do believe. When they see the true pursuit of justice and mercy being lived out real time, hear me, in the context of and on the basis of your faithfulness to Jesus, that's a powerfully compelling witness that draws people to want to know more. That's a powerfully compelling witness. Why? Because on the whole, that's not what people have come to expect from the church today. They don't see that very often from the church. If anything, if people think about the church at all, they see us as like the moral police of the world just seeking to restrict everyone's fun and enjoyment in life. That's how we're most often thought of. But when you present your faith in Jesus as a why that compels you to want to fight for the cause of the poor and the weak and the marginalized, that causes you to forgive others who sin against you, that causes you to absorb the debts that are owed to you by other people, that's compelling to people. 
That's what Jeff Vanderstelt calls living your life in a way that demands a gospel explanation. But it's also why Jesus lists all three. He says these three things are the matters that matter most to God in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And why we can't pick and choose which ones we want to follow. <laughs> Today I'm going to be merciful. Or, you know, we can't pick and choose. We need all three in order to have that really compelling witness to the world around us. I love John Tyson's comment on this reality. He kind of highlights the different, really deficient combinations that we try to put together in some of his own work on this passage. So first one he lists there is mercy plus justice minus faithfulness. We try to leave out faithfulness. He says ultimately what we get there is just secular humanism. Just this idea, hey, life is really hard and we need to work for justice, but there's no divine reference point. It's just we need to be kind to people and work for justice. But then, of course, the question he asks is, well, whose definition of justice? Justice according to whom? We need that divine reference point to know what justice actually looks like. Second one he lists there, justice plus faithfulness minus mercy. Well, there we have what he calls harsh activism. Just like I'm seeing the problems in the world and I don't have the luxury of waiting around for you to get your act together. So there's an urgency to it, but that urgency can quickly become a kind of self-righteousness, he says, that actually repels people from an openness to the work because it feels condescending. And then lastly, you have mercy plus faithfulness minus justice, which he says is ultimately just deficient pietism. It's just like I'm really nice and I'm really good with God and I'm irrelevant to the needs of the world. Do you see how a deficiency in any one of those things actually becomes a distortion of the message and causes us to lead people towards a different destination than Jesus says he wants us to lead people towards as his kingdom citizens. We need all three working together. And then he concludes this way. The key to spiritual maturity is to be able to hold all these things together. You need to figure out how to put mercy, justice, and faithfulness at the center of your theology and your life together. And then, I love this, then you can figure out how to work the kitchen herbs into your scenario of holiness. Let's start with the most important aspects of the law and then work on the peripherals, which are also important. As we seek to do this individually, collectively as God's church, may God grant us wisdom and humility today to place these things that Jesus prioritized at the center of our lives and witness. May these be the things that characterize us, justice, mercy, faithfulness, and then give us faith and courage to live all of them out authentically, day by day, in a way that is truly compelling to the world around us, even as our own faith and love for God is deepened in the process as well. Amen.